The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we... Party like is 1999, and we're still not over Kurt Cobain's suicide. So grab your black AF eyeliner and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about intergenerational trauma, the trauma that you inherited from your caregivers and that they inherited from theirs and on and on. This has been up for me recently in my personal journey. Literally, my therapist pointed out to me just last week that this belief I was telling her about was verbatim what my mom used to tell me when I was growing up. I was like, wow, shit, that's not even my own fear. So let's start off with a working definition of intergenerational trauma. This is from the American Psychology Association website, and it's kind of a mouthful, so get ready. They say that intergenerational trauma is, quote, a phenomenon in which the descendants of a person who has experienced a terrifying event show adverse emotional and behavioral reactions to the event that are similar to those of the person themselves. These reactions vary by generation, but often include shame, increased anxiety and guilt, a heightened sense of vulnerability and helplessness, low self-esteem, depression, suicidality, substance abuse, dissociation, hypervigilance, intrusive thoughts, difficulty with relationships and attachment to others, difficulty in regulating aggression and extreme reactivity to stress, unquote. So yeah, a ton of stuff, in other words. To help us navigate this topic, I want to welcome marriage and family therapist, Renee Tate to the show. Hi, Renee. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Remy. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yay, yay, yay. Yeah. And to introduce you, let's talk about your astrology. You're a Capricorn sun, Leo moon, Virgo rising. I love how that combo is so grounded and so fun all at the same time. Do you feel like those resonate for you? Do they align with how you view yourself? Uh, funny enough, I, uh, for a long time, when I first found out that I was a Capricorn in high school, um, I was like, okay, I can see, see some of it, but it didn't feel like all of it resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And even all the way through probably until college is where I was like, ah, what is my trauma? Like I, even then I was like, what's my trauma versus what's actually me? Because I was like, I don't fit the archetype of the regular, like what, what is a Capricorn who's traumatized look like? And I'm very, <laughs> I feel that's still in the back of my head, right? To do astrology um, or trauma based on astrology and what it might look like and how it might manifest in certain signs, right? Like, oh my God. Idea. Who's writing the book? Please send me a link. Oh so, my God. You are writing that book that is fascinating i would be i would obsess over that book obsess i definitely would it would help me learn a little bit more about myself in just a different way in one of the the funner ways because i think astrology is fun for me yeah 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 well also having that leo moon you know you get excited about things and you know you get emotionally excited yeah yeah. Ooh. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye out for, for your book, <laughs> for your astrology trauma book. Um, cool. Okay. So then I'll go ahead and jump into my experience on this topic. Renee, feel free to interject at any time with thoughts, ideas, you know, riddles, or you can totally just hang out, get a massage, whatever you want to do. Either way at the end, I'll jump back over to you with questions. How does that sound? It sounds good. I'm listening. Okay, cool. Okay. So I'm going to talk about my family's intergenerational trauma. I'll start by saying that I really don't know a whole lot about my family tree on either side, but there's serious trauma on both sides, which is a lot of why I don't know all the things. Um, I do know some things though. So I'll share what I know and I'll talk about the way it's affected me. 
So both my biological grandfathers abandoned their families. On my mom's side, my grandfather walked out when my mom was just six months old and she was the youngest of three kids. From what I know, it was sort of an I'll be back later and then never came back kind of thing. I also heard from a family member that he at some point wrote to my grandmother and told her that if she could find a way to ditch the kids, she should meet up with him. (laughs) It's just like, what the fuck? So it was sort of like he, he didn't leave her per se. He just wanted nothing to do with children or with being a father. And he just fucking peaced out and just left. It was like, it's fine. I'm just going to leave you to shoulder all of this on my dad's side. The abandonment looked really different. My grandmother married super young. She got involved with a man who was 12 years older when she was 16. He was 28 and surprised. He was a huge fucking asshole. My grandmother had lost her father when she was seven. He was shot to death in the street, which I speculate is the reason she was attracted to a much older man, but I digress. Anyway, my biological grandfather, he soon became super violent with her after they got married and later with my dad, after my dad was born and was mean and abusive and obsessive and jealous and all the things. When my grandmother told him she wanted a divorce at 25, when she was 25, he said, if you leave, don't ever contact me or ask me for anything. I won't have anything to do with you or with our son, their son being my dad. And she said, yeah, if that's how you want it, fine. So she left when my dad was nine. And after that, my dad never knew his dad. My grandfather, true to his word, never had anything to do with them. No child support, no birthday cards, no calls, nothing. I'll pause there and say these two men, my biological grandfathers, are really good examples of what can happen in a patriarchy where men can leave their children without any kind of social consequence. If a woman abandons her children, She's often shunned from the community and there are even serious legal consequences, but men can walk away and have no repercussions because men are making the rules. And as a result, they often do leave, you know, children growing up without fathers is not unfortunately an uncommon story. And it's very much a pattern within patriarchal structures to the point where the U S has the highest rate of single mother households of any country per data gathered in 2018. And I just want to insert a moment here to reflect on the fact that this week, the SCOTUS decision to overturn Roe versus Wade was leaked. And so we know what they're doing and it's fucking traumatic. It's awful. It's sick. And it's the patriarchy doing what the patriarchy does, forcing people with uteruses to have children so that cishet men can stay in power. And you see that already men can pursue their interests. They can have careers. They can come and go as they please. And even if they do stay with the family physically, they're not expected to take care of children to the extent that women are, you know, like a lot of people talk about fathers who are physically there, but not emotionally there either emotionally unresponsive, emotionally volatile and aggressive, you know, whatever it is, which is also totally in keeping with patriarchal structures in the sense that men are often, and I'm talking about cishet men are often punished or bullied for being kind and nurturing. So by the time they become fathers, they've often stifled the part of them that's caring. And so they can't give it to their children. Women, on the other hand, are expected to be with the children, nurture the children, care for the children's physical, emotional, mental needs. Women are defined by motherhood in the culture and men are just not. And I think it's only been very recently that we've seen any kind of societal shift around that. And that's, of course, been in tandem with Roe versus Wade and our culture taking on broader discussions around feminism and misogyny. Okay, so... Let's look at my parents a bit. After the age of nine, my dad was essentially raised by his mom, my grandma, and her family. She had a big family, lots of brothers and sisters, and was super close with her mom. So my dad was surrounded by people who loved him. But those first eight years in a child's life are super important. And his dad was abusive during that time. And then literally not once, never, ever called or wrote or anything past the point of my dad being nine on my mom's side. 
after her father walked out, which happened in 1950 in Kansas, you can imagine her mom was a single mother of three in the fifties when such a thing was like, not only super scandalous, but also a financial nightmare again in a patriarchal structure, women just aren't paid what men are. And back then it was hard just to get a job as a woman. So as a means of survival, both financially and socially, my grandmother remarried pretty quickly. And the man she married was a complete fucking monster, just abusive in pretty much every imaginable way. He was also an alcoholic. So a lot of the abuse happened when he was drunk. And on top of that, he really hated his three stepkids because they represented his wife being with another man previously, which is also super patriarchal, that whole thing about men needing to be in control of women's bodies and sexuality. So my mom was terrorized pretty much all of her childhood and adolescence until she got out of there when she was 17. Okay. Fast forward to my childhood. My parents divorced when I was six months because my dad was cheating and doing lots of drugs and becoming increasingly physically abusive. After my mom left him, my dad never paid child support, which again, super patriarchal. My mom even took him to court about it. And the judge who was, you know, a cishet dude was like, what do you expect him to do? He has no money. Like it always makes me laugh. Cause I'm like, imagine if my dad had been in court for a bunch of unpaid parking tickets. Like, how do you think the judge would have responded? Just like, Oh, you blow all your money on drugs and booze. Well, guess you can't pay those tickets. But when it came to refusing to take financial responsibility for his own children, it was just like shrug, you know, like no repercussions at all. When I think back on my relationship to my dad as a little girl, he was really scary, either like scary or just emotionally unavailable, not interested, but really didn't have a lot going on in between. Every once in a while, he would show some kind of affection, but it was super rare and almost only when he was drunk or high. And I, I think, you know, when I think about my dad and I think about his dad, probably in his mind, he was doing a great job because it was so much better than, than his dad. Right. But, um, you know, I think he was really traumatized by feeling abandoned and unloved by his father. And if I had to speculate, I would say the combination of growing up as a dark skinned Mexican American in the extremist patriarchy that was Texas in the fifties. I mean, I should say that is Texas now, (laughs) but in the fifties, you know, it was like super stoic. John Wayne was a hero and, um, racism was rampant, Uh, you know, it was a nightmare and not much has changed there to be honest. So on my dad's side, there was this distrust of people, but really more so I think a distrust of love essentially. And of course his dad was an alcoholic. My dad then became an alcoholic and addict. I think my dad was probably really afraid of his dad growing up. I can only imagine based on the stories my grandma has told me. And then he followed suit and also became a pretty terrifying presence as a dad. With my mom, there was obviously no way she could get out of her childhood unscathed in terms of her mental health. But I won't go too much into that, except to say that the way she was abused by her stepfather played a huge role in the way she parented. She was sort of emotionally hysterical, I think. And because she was never in therapy, that never went away, which obviously impacted me deeply. But more specifically to this lineage of trauma, she was in deep grief over not feeling loved. And she was deeply bitter toward men when I was growing up. Like I remember when I was like maybe five, I was super into Michael Jackson. I knew every song on the Thriller album. And one day I was singing Billie Jean to myself And then I turned to my mom and I was like, mom, if the baby's eyes look just like his, why does he say it's not his son? (laughs) And without giving a beat, my mom was like, because that's how men are Remy. So there was both this deep distrust of men and this intense grief around not having a husband and not feeling loved by men. She would literally sob to us when we were toddlers and say like, why doesn't anyone, why don't I have a husband? Why, why doesn't anyone love me? She also 
lived life as if nothing was safe. She was never safe and we were never safe as a family. I grew up thinking that we could be homeless at any moment. Even as a teenager, when my mom was making almost six figures in the nineties, you know, that was a lot of money back then. Her fear of a bad thing being around every corner, which was a result of the abuse and the trauma that she experienced in her home, that fear filtered into so many aspects of our lives. And that's definitely one of the things I inherited. As I've gotten older, I've had this ongoing fear that the world is sort of out to get me and predatory. And just recently, my therapist was like, that's not you. That's your mom. So I'll just pause and kind of synthesize this. I think there are several things going on when I think about intergenerational trauma. There's the trauma of the patriarchy, which has been going on for thousands of years and is currently thriving under the Supreme Court. And it has traumatized everyone of every gender, but has also given cishet men a power that no one else has the same access to. And that's especially true for white cishet men. So that's one thread in my family's intergenerational trauma but also in pretty much everyone's family history to some extent, since that's like a ubiquitous cultural issue that spans many cultures. Although of course it shows up in some families more than others. There's also the trauma of addiction. Both my parents had father figures with addiction issues. And my dad then also struggled with his own addiction issues. Certainly not every family struggles with addiction, but a lot of families do. But the thing that really stands out to me in terms of the trauma I inherited was this trauma around men, which is related to patriarchal trauma. Both of my grandfathers were sexual predators and sort of maniacal in their abuse. My paternal grandfather went after a 16-year-old so that he could have someone to easily manipulate both sexually and emotionally. My maternal step-grandfather, my mom's stepfather, preyed on his stepdaughters and used all of the children as punching bags. And there was the element of abandonment from men on both sides of my family, my mom's dad who walked out and my dad's dad who went no contact. But the thing for me in this discussion is that, yes, (laughs) these men were shitty for sure, but I never knew any of these men. I never knew them. And despite that, despite the fact that I don't even know what any of them look like, I also know that they've had this enormous impact on my life, especially when I wrestle with the fact that I've essentially never really had a relationship with a man. I'm heterosexual and I've dated and I've even dated sort of seriously, but I've never been with someone outside of high school who I would have introduced as my boyfriend, which was one thing when I was 30, but another thing entirely when I turned 40. I've had my own traumatizing experiences with men from ghosting to cheating and lying to maxing out my credit card without me knowing to sexual assault. By the time I had gotten to my late thirties, I essentially was like, all men are unsafe on some level. They won't all assault you, but they're all incapable of really loving women. So Maybe they'll belittle your experience or use you for sex or blow you off when you're trying to connect. Like my brain was wholly resistant to the idea that even a portion of men could be genuinely loving. So what has been helpful for me in working through this? I'll start by saying that everyone's intergenerational trauma is going to look different. So that will also impact what treatments are are successful For me, I found EMDR to be really helpful. If you're not familiar, EMDR was created to treat war veterans who were suffering from PTSD. So here are the facts. Essentially, a traumatized brain is holding the trauma on the right side of the brain, which is the side that holds emotion. The problem with that is that the left side of the brain, the side that keeps logic, can't access the trauma because it's all being stored on the right side. So there's no way to diffuse the traumatized thoughts with logical thoughts. So if your traumatized thought is every time I hear a loud noise, it's a bomb going off. The left side of the brain can't step in and be like, or maybe it's a car honking. Let me find out first before I react. For me, the traumatized thought was men are dangerous. Men can't truly love anyone but themselves. I can't trust men. So with EMDR, what you do is trail a light with your eyes back and forth from left to right. It's like a, 
it's like a little light that just moves. It zigzags back and forth. And as you do that, you repeat your traumatized thought to yourself. And because the physical movement of moving your eyes back and forth activates both sides of your brain, now suddenly the left side of your brain can finally access the traumatized thought and interrupt it. Then you repeat the process with your new thought. So for me, the new thought was some men are capable of love and I can find one of them. And over time, that has become my new belief. Recently, I was at a party and I ended up talking to this guy for like an hour. And when I saw my therapist a few days later, I was like, I talked to this guy and he was so smart and so thoughtful and interesting and such a good husband and dad. And he didn't hit on me once. And it was just a win for me to be like, yes, some men are total shit, but there are some genuinely wonderful men out there. And if they're out there, that means I could be in a relationship with one of them. So EMDR for sure, super effective and literally changes your brain so that your trauma isn't in charge. That said, sometimes we don't know what our traumatized thoughts are. Like the other day when I was telling my therapist that I felt like, um, the universe, like the, the thing, the, I don't want to say the world, because I feel like that's too kind of general, but I mean, like a spiritual universe wants to hurt me. Like that was the feeling that I was having that I was telling my therapist about. And she was like, is that you, or is that you repeating what your mom taught you? And I was like, shit, that's so real. So I also want to encourage talk therapy because a therapist can catch those moments and interrupt the thoughts and be like, actually, it makes a lot of sense that you're having that thought. That's what you were taught your whole childhood. But do you think that's true? Do you think that's real? And the last one I'll offer is somatic therapy, which I know we've talked about before on this podcast, because that inherited trauma can live in the body. And that's something somatic therapy addresses. It addresses the way that like, for me, if a guy shuts me down when I'm giving my opinion, like I have to cry immediately, which by the way, that exact thing happened to me a little over a year ago. I was kind of like seeing this guy and we were hiking and he was an atheist. And I was talking about my evolving relationship to spirituality. And he kind of like shut it down. And I was like, excuse me, I have to pee behind that bush. And I just went and sobbed (laughs) behind a bush. I was just having this like immediate physical response because the trauma of feeling like men don't care about me or my perspective or what I have to say as a human is so deep that it literally lives in my cells. And I have a physical reaction to it immediately, which was crying, which somatic therapy works with. Like you can work with the physical aspect of your trauma so that it gets released from your body. Okay. That was a mouthful. Renee, how are you doing over there? I am just holding space for you. Like my hand is over my heart because I am just like, oh, Remy, I'm so glad you're on this healing journey and that you're breaking these intergenerational, transgenerational, like inherited ancestral patterns, traumas, wounds, like kudos. Well, and also, but this, I, I am so thankful for you because you were the one when we kind of chatted a while back, you were like, I think we should talk about this. And I was like, oh my God, yes. So thank you for bringing this topic up. I think it's such an important topic and one that maybe doesn't get um, discussed enough. Like we don't hear about it as much, I think in the mainstream, maybe less so than like attachment theory, you know, everyone knows their attachment style or whatever. I feel like this is one that's really important and doesn't get the same kind of attention. So thank you. And I know you have a lot to share on this topic from your own experience as well. So I'm, I'm really excited um, to ask you some questions. Sounds good. Okay. I mentioned that I recently had a situation in therapy where I was like, I have this terrible belief around fear. And my therapist is like, that's not your belief. You've literally told me your mom raised you on that idea, which begs the question what does the process look like of sifting through what trauma is truly ours and what trauma was handed down to us? Such a good question. And I definitely am of the camp that like all trauma, like I want to say all trauma doesn't belong to us, which, you know, to, to a degree, um, can hold some weight 
because I think we, we often operate from patterns of what we know. We operate from patterns and belief systems um, based on our families. Mm -hmm. They were our first schools, they were our first teachers. And so when there's unresolved trauma living and existing in the bodies of our parents, of our siblings, of our aunts, our uncles, our grandmas, our grandparents, like that trauma often will be disguised as like dysfunctional bonds or a family belief or family creed or a family edict, right? It's a way of thinking, it's a way of being, um, it's a way of existing in a family so you don't get pushed out. Right. So yeah, so it's, it's often hard to kind of sift through what belongs to, to you and what belongs to that what what piece of it is legacy right what piece of it is inherited but i think the most important thing to really think about is does this align with who i am and who i believe myself to be mm -hmm. right is this story mine does this resonate with the person that i am mm -hmm. because if it doesn't chances are it was handed down to you from someone and oftentimes it's people we care about, right? It's people we love, even if they're not exhibiting love in the, in a way that's healthy, that's gonna support us to grow and that's gonna support us to be autonomous and responsible and all these great things. Um, sometimes it might be the opposite end where it's more of a manipulation kind of love, right? I'll give you love if, I'll give you love when, I'll give you love, you know, as I see fit to give it to you, right? Mm -hmm. And we all want to be loved. So I, I like to, to kind of share that like trauma is that piece of us that may feel stuck because something doesn't resonate with us. And yet we are swallowing it whole. We're swallowing it full stop because it's, it's what we believe is true about us. But there's something, there's that gut, there's that intuition, there's that instinct of like, hey, actually, I don't know if this belongs to me. Right. I don't know if this belongs to me. And so I, I know in my work with my my clients and we often will talk about trauma as this thing that happens too too soon, too too fast, too often when there's not something that was reparative that was able to come into it. And intergenerational trauma is no different. Right. Inherited trauma is no different. It's just this story or this way of being that was passed down that wasn't questioned. Mm. Oftentimes when you start questioning a dynamic in your family, I guarantee you that is an unresolved trauma pattern that is happening, con that is continuing to happen in your, in your generation, right? Wait, okay, say that last part again. Mm -hmm. When you say it again. So oftentimes when you start to question something in your family dynamic mm -hmm. or a pattern that you're seeing, Mm -hmm. And this this will happen because you start having other experiences out in the world and you're seeing how other people and other families navigate right. and relate to each other, right? Right. And you're like, oh, that's so interesting. And then you notice something happening in your own family relationships and dynamics to where you're like, okay, <laughs> right. that, that that moment is often can be traced to... I, I want to say I want to guarantee you, but I can't always guarantee it because sometimes it is something that may have happened within your generation, right? Mm -hmm. But oftentimes it can be something that was inherited, something right. that was passed down unquestioned right. that just became the way that your family operate. Yeah. And I think that's, it's really interesting to think about that because that, that is something that doesn't happen until we get older. You know, like as we start to get a little bit older, even if it's like maybe nine or 10 and maybe we have dinner at someone else. Like I remember for me, one of the things was um, I would go over to other friends' houses and they would all sit down together for dinner. Mm -hmm. My mom, because she was a single mom, was hardly ever home during dinner time. And so we would like microwave like frozen taquitos <laughs> and um my sister and I would eat it in front of the television you know with all the lights off in the house like it was just a weird I was like oh this is really different from like the whole family sitting down and um 
like talk, we're all talking about our day and, um, you know, it's like we start to make, and, and of course, like it wasn't, it wasn't my mom's fault that she couldn't be there. There are all, there's, there are all of these other, um, things in place. But one thing that you said that was so powerful, I thought was about how we don't want to be sort of like kicked out of the fan of the, I, I use the word tribe knowing that it's sort of a problematic word, but like from, from that space where we, our DNA comes from tribal communities and we are conditioned to feel like I need to belong to this group in order to stay safe and to stay alive. Mm -hmm. If staying in the group or in the quote unquote tribe means agreeing that, for example, um, you know, I, the first thing that came to mind was like, if your parents are, uh, you know, neo-Nazis, let's say, uh, and they, they say like, being a Nazi is like, this is, this is the way to be or whatever. I don't know. And then like part of you staying within the group is to agree with that, right? You have to get on board with that. And maybe, you know, when you're three, maybe you don't really know any different. Maybe by the time you get to college or something, you start to question that you're like, wait, what? This is a terrible example, I guess, because being, um, because it's so extreme, but I guess my point is I really love what you're saying about how sometimes we can take on these really traumatic, or maybe another belief is like, um, the world, maybe like mine, like the world is out to get you and you have to get on board with that in order to feel accepted by the group. That's what everyone believes. So I have to believe it too. Mm -hmm. And then, and then at some point you question it, but questioning it means, are you going to get kicked out of the group now? Right. And so I thought that was a really interesting point that you brought up. I, I love that you're circling back to that because it also takes, it takes me back to thinking about like our nervous systems. Mm. We want safety. Our nervous systems are, are, we want safety, we want connection, right? Porges talks about the polyvagal theory and how like we are constantly, like neuroception is that concept of like constantly looking in our environment to see if we are detecting threat or are we seeing cues of safety. And in those moments where we are detecting threat, like even within our own family, we can detect threat, but we will dismiss it. And so we will allow ourselves to be existing in that heightened state of the threat and the fight response, like throughout our childhood, essentially, right. because we want to stay in the family and it kind of crosses wires. And so our definition of what safety is, is going to be drastically different from someone else's definition of safety. If we're in an environment that is constantly telling us like, no, deny that, that it, that's not true. Right. Wow. Pushing our intuition down. <gasps> right. And so, yeah. So if you grew up in a family where there, where you were sort of, where there were threats to your safety mm -hmm. happening all the time. And then, um, and then let's say you grow up, you're looking for a partner or a romantic situation. Um, maybe all of a sudden you see those threats again, but you don't read them as threats because you're so used to them. Is that kind of, and then like that lends itself to getting involved in abusive situations. Is that sort of, is, am I reading that right? Is that kind of how that yeah. works? Right. Mm -hmm. it, it works that way in terms of the, the larger, or well, I don't want to say larger because it's an experience in those, in those experiences, right? There's a vulnerability there. And it also works in the same way of like, like our beliefs, Mm -hmm. around like what love is and if love is sacrificial, right? Then you're always going to be sacrificing yourself. <laughs> and even though your nervous system is like, this doesn't feel good, this doesn't, this isn't right, like you're going to dismiss it. Right. And so you're more likely to be in relationships where you maybe become a people pleaser because you're sacrificing yourself constantly, throwing yourself at the feet of the people you want to love you. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Shit. Um, Okay. That's, uh, that really hits home for me. Cause I know like a lot of my role in the family for a really long time was, um, the, like I would try the fixer, mm. no matter what I could, I would get involved with my mom and my sister with their 
issues and try to fix it for them. Mm-hmm. And instead of being like, how do I feel right now in my body? Oh, this feels really scary. This feels um, unfair to me. Cause like what I remember one time there was an issue where my mom wanted the keys to something. My sister had left them in like North Hollywood. And my sister was like, well, sorry, you didn't tell me to bring them. So I left them there. And my mom was like, well, now I'm really pissed because I don't have them. And instead of me being like, I had plans tonight Bye. I was like, I'm going to drive to North Hollywood and get the keys and bring them to mom. You, you doing that was like your nervous system being like, I need to find regulation. How am I going to find regulation? If I solve this, (laughs) if I help solve this problem, it will allow me to come back to homeostasis, that balance, that equilibrium. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it's adaptive. Right. So I'm sure when you were smaller, it was really supportive for you. But as an adult, it might get in the way of your plans that you had for your evening, right? It starts right. to get in the way of your relationships when it becomes this, un, like this, this just railroad train that constantly goes. Right. Whew, so much to unpack. Okay. My second question, a lot of intergenerational trauma is part of these bigger conversations around culture colonialism, racism, patriarchy, identity, war, et cetera. Can you talk about the connection between all kind of these bigger ideas and intergenerational trauma? Yeah. So there is a therapist, author, trauma specialist, uh, amazing human being called Resma Menicum. And he has this quote that I want to share, right? And I think this really kind of has helped me to really conceptualize how um, intergenerational trauma and culture are linked. And he says, like, trauma decontextualized in a person looks like personality. Trauma decontextualized in a family looks like traits and trauma decontextualized in people looks like culture. Mm. And what decontextualize, what does that mean? So at one point there may have been context for where trauma arrived from, right? So there may have been, mm, we can say like an event happened or something like, right? And so you know where the source of it was. The response travels from that original epicenter, right? And then it ripples, it kind of ripples out. But the further away from the center it gets, the more decontextualized it gets because there's no context in which it exists now. Right. Now it exists as culture, essentially, right? And you can think of all the isms, essentially, as being decontextualized trauma. Whoa. Like there was never a chance for, for things to be resolved. Whoa. Okay. So we're talking about like in a person, decontextualized trauma is your personality. That's what he's saying. In a, my personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a family, it's traits. Mm-hmm. And in a group of people, in a society, it's culture. Mm-hmm. Interesting. In terms of water we swim in. And for intergenerational trauma specifically, it becomes our, our family belief system and those Mm -hmm. family belief systems as they spread across societies, then that, then that kind of becomes society and that becomes the cultural norm, right? Mm -hmm. Like you think about the communities. um, I often think back to, I I had the opportunity to do some research around um, intimate partner violence Mm -hmm. and how it's really going to take a cultural shift. It's really going to take community to kind of shift that because it's not just the individuals who are impacted by it. It's the family, it's the school system, it's the community, it's the neighbors, right? Right. And so when we allow it to continue to go on from generation to generation to generation, because it's like, oh, that's none of my business. I'm going to turn the other cheek. It's like, okay, now we have to have a whole community, um, mobilize around this. We have to get on the same page around like not just helping the person being abused, but helping the abuser too, because there's some unresolved trauma there. And I, I find myself being in, in that position of like, don't just throw the, don't just like, I guess I'm an abolitionist in this way. Like don't, jail doesn't support 
anyone. Gel doesn't help anything. Right. <laughs> right. Stuff doesn't help anything. Right. right. Um, and trying to re not even reimagine that system, but trying to figure out how can we actually support people to heal from the things that has caused them to exist in the way that they're existing, mm -hmm. that has caused them to perpetrate um, violence against someone else. Right. Right. Yeah. I know. I hear what you're saying. It's so interesting. You, you brought up jail because literally some, someone randomly called me the other day and was like, taking surveys on how people feel, how do you, how do you respond to this statement? And I don't know, normally I would be like, I don't have time by, but there, I don't know if I was just like feeling really disgruntled with the world, but all of the questions were around the prison system and, and jails. Mm -hmm. And essentially where I live, they were, there was some sort of push to, um, focus on rehabilitation rather mm -hmm. than incarceration. Mm -hmm. And, and I was like, I was just like getting really um, heated about it. I was like, we need rehabilitation. We're not, I want my tax dollars to go to that. I want to pay because I do see this as if you don't heal these people who are suffering, whether because um, they've been victimized or because they have been perpetrators, like we're not, we're not going to see change. You know, we're not going to see, and this I hadn't thought about it at the time, but you're right. This is that, this is intergenerational trauma. I mean, prisons are such a good example of intergenerational trauma and the ways, especially in this country with um, how prison, the prison system has been used as like neo-slavery yeah. and separate, breaking apart families and, you know, the way it's um, traumatized particularly black families and people of color, um, you know, Latino families. And, and it's just been another way for the patriarchy and white supremacy to assert control and also to breaking down the family yeah. That is one way of asserting control, because if the, it's exactly what you're talking about. If the family belief is there's no point in trying, for example, or, um, we have no power. If that's the belief in the family and you grow up in that family, then you go on to believe that and, and to perpetuate that and to, um, respond to the culture in a way that reflects, I have no power, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and then it's really easy for people to have power over you. So I don't know if that's like particularly in relationship to what you were saying, but I, I'm really feeling that right now. I'm really feeling the pain of the system. Yeah. And the system is, is, it has its hands in creating and perpetuating, like, not just the intergenerational trauma, but like the collective trauma too, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's so many different forms of trauma and they're all intertwined, mm -hmm. right? And they just all happen at different levels. And thinking about like my own family experience, I can say how addiction is a part of my intergenerational trauma, right? And I know you shared that addiction is part of yours too. I feel fortunate enough to have kind of had the resources to where I didn't fall into the same kind of pattern, right? right. Like for whatever reasons, and I think the universe for all the reasons I don't have to know, my, my life has kind of taken a different trajectory, but I know that my mother was in the throes of addiction, like South Central Los Angeles when the crack epidemic was, was hot and heavy, like in the eighties and nineties, that was a thing. And I have really early memories of kind of like going on searching missions for her because she went AWOL from a rehab, right? Mm -hmm. And just being a tiny child in the back of a station wagon with my dad and other siblings like searching for her in the streets and just seeing all the poverty and all the hurting people like who are in the throes of this and just looking for a way to escape because the conditions were such that that was that was the thing that was the escape that was the support like any other kind of support just paled in comparison to what 
the drugs could do to to help someone and I know my mom's mother also did drugs and I'm just like okay there, there's a gateway here there's like a little pattern here there's like at, at some point um something happened to my mom like part part of my history is also not really having had a relationship with my mom having that broken family right mm -hmm. I'm part of the Department of Children and Family Services, like that whole system, right? The child welfare system. I was born in that essentially, like in and out of that. And so being a foster alumni, like I had broken family, didn't really have relationship with my mom, had a relationship with my dad up until, you know, and they're both since gone. So the ability to even have like those conversations with them wasn't even in my awareness. So I just have to kind of wonder at times, like when things do come up, like, where did I get this from? Like, is this really mine? Is this a part of the family line? And just kind of sit with things and be like, okay, whether it's mine or not, I see it, it's here. How can I heal from it? Mm. Like, how can I integrate this experience? What meaning am I making of it? Hmm. Yeah. What meaning am I making of this? You know, um, listening to your story and thinking about systems, I am white passing, but as I briefly mentioned, my dad, um, is, is very dark skinned. He's uh, Mexican American. And I saw him recently when I was in Texas, which is where he lives. And we were looking for a place to have dinner. And I said, he lives in a part of Austin that has increasingly become gentrified. And I was like, oh, there's a really cute, like, uh, Vietnamese, like pho place down the street. But he was like, I don't want to go there. And he was like getting really upset. And he was like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. And he was like, every place I was saying that was close to his house, he didn't want to go to. And finally he just yelled out, I hate white people. I want to go to the East side and eat Mexican food. And, um, and I was really taken aback when he said that in part, because I was like, and I looked at him and I said, dad, you've only procreated with white people. <laughs> like you had four kids with three women. They were all white as fuck. Um, but like in my dad's mind, that means something very specific, right? It's like, it's yeah. these people who came into this side of town, who took everything over, who now charge um, $25 for a bowl of ramen, you know, and like, it, it has a whole other meaning to him than it does to me because I haven't felt oppressed in the way that he has. Mm -hmm. And I think him growing up, like he, his mom has a story about, um, they were living in West Texas. It was the fifties. This was, um, while she was still married to my grandfather and, his friend in West Texas in the fifties, it was, it was like a bunch of white people and his, the, he was playing with like Joey and Ricky, you know, my dad's name is Tomas and he was playing with Joey and Ricky, like the, the next door neighbor kids who, who were white mm -hmm. and they wanted to play Cowboys and Indians. Mm -hmm. And my dad, they told my dad that he couldn't be a cowboy because he wasn't white. And he was so upset he didn't understand what they were talking about. And so I think it's like this, you know, to look at my dad scream out, I hate white people when we're looking for a restaurant and also know, you know, my dad didn't tell me that story. My grandma did, right? Like that is a painful memory for my dad. I'm, I'm sure, but he, he doesn't talk about it. And yet here it is showing up in these other ways, uh -huh. um, you know, almost 70 years later, right? Where it's like this, this resentment and this anger, and then that gets passed on and on and on if it doesn't ever get interrupted. So, um, which sort of brings me to my next question, which is, I think, you know, sometimes intergenerational trauma can shape shift mm -hmm. it jumps from generation to generation. And like, I've heard stories from people who were raised by Holocaust victims about how their parents were so traumatized that they were very emotionally shut down like their parents were and they didn't show affection because, you know, maybe they had a belief that like, it's not like the, the world is, uh, 
evil, you know, or whatever it was. And so, and so they just weren't able to like be open and vulnerable and loving. So whereas, um, those parents may have been carrying a trauma around fear and grief, their children took on a trauma around not feeling like they were enough or not feeling lovable. Cause they just never felt like anything they did, uh, sort of instigated a, the response that they, the loving response that they wanted from their parents. Can you speak to that process of intergenerational trauma shape-shifting over time and how that impacts us? So I think it's, I want to share a little bit around like epigenetics, because I think epigenetics really comes into play here as it relates to the trauma shape-shifting over time, because epigenetics shares basically is talking about how the environments we live in and exist in can influence our genes Mm. and more specifically the trauma can be transmitted like over the generations right so the trauma that not just when you're out of the womb but all the way to when you're in the womb Mm. so if your mother or I want to say if your mother's mother was in the womb, (laughs) there's like, you were also in your mother's mother's like womb. Like there's the egg, right? Yeah. Yes. Everything needed for you. Like at some point, like there's three generations in one body. Right. Like at any given point there can be, yes. At any given point, there's like the three generations ahead, the three generations behind. Right. Mm -hmm. So like if you, if your first environment was one of like, I don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. Like your the ability for you to access safety outside of that womb is kind of shape shifting your nervous system in a way that potentially helps you function, but also is not optimal for connection. Mm. Right? Can you go into that? Yeah, unpack that for us. So thinking about the the nervous system, right? So we have our the fight flight response system. And then we have our safety and connection system. That's how I kind of like like to like prime them. They're one in the same system. They're not a different system. They're the same system. But at any given time, one of those responses is given priority. And when one is on, the other is off and vice versa, right? So if we're constantly living in that state of like cannot access safety, our ability to connect is going to be operating from the unsafe place, mm. right? So it's going to be harder to develop those like true connections, that meaningful connection with someone, right? Mm. To access play is going to be so much harder. To access creativity is going to be so much harder. Mm. And so I think it's important to like realize that like over time that will transition because if we have a parent who like you, you shared, like your mom, right? about safety there was no sense of safety everything is like out to get you potentially and then it manifests in you in like a paranoia like paranoia everything's always going to get me like there's this low grade like fear of everything but like something terrible potentially manifesting Mm -hmm. and so um i like when you shared about like attachment theory like you brought in that i forget where you brought it in earlier but i think there's a combination of things that happen and that a different, a lot of theories and ways of being that have been studied that can all shed light on how the trauma that gets transmitted shapeshifts over time, because you're not going to have the same response to say, like, if we think about enslaved Africans, right? At one point, berating your children was protective. You didn't want your child to be sold or get separated from your child. You didn't want your child to garner any kind of attention from the person who enslaved you, right? right? And so talking down on you, the negative self-talk, like that was a protective factor at one point. And displaced from that coming down into further generations, it still exists, but in the form of potentially berating your child still, but not knowing that there is this whole other context in which it existed 
And so now like there's almost this separation, but like you, you get the child who was berated. And then if the child grows up to be an adult and then they become a parent, they're going to show a lack of love to their child. They might not berate their child, but there's not going to be that connection. They don't have an ability to connect with their child. And so that child might experience that parent as being unloving, Mm. as not being attentive, as not being caring, you know, in addition to whatever else is happening in the environment. Mm. So then that child might grow up with a certain kind of attachment style. Like, so it all kind of interplays with each other. Right, right. All the, all the trauma factors, they, they, they all affect one another, essentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's a really, um, the one that you're speaking to berating children as a form of protection. And then especially for, um, African slaves and that, that legacy in our country of slavery and the way that that has, and, and when, when you think about the system now that if, if you look at berating children, it's passed down, it makes, it was like created by the, the beyond trauma that was slavery. And now it's looked at as abuse and it's a reason for the system to be able to take kids mm-hmm. from their parents. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. And so now we're creating more abuse. And so again, I want to draw attention to these systems, right? Like these, um, patriarchal white supremacist systems that break families up mm-hmm. and, um, that in that are, I mean, what's more abusive than slavery, you know, and, and the way that that impacted families in a way that, you know, several generations down, those families are being called abusive because of this abuse that was enacted on them, you know, maybe four generations before or whatever it was. To me, it's, it's so disheartening because it's like, it's so big. And that's, that's what it feels like to me. It's like, wow, this is so big. And so that brings me to my last question, which is, can I really quickly, Oh, jump in. You You were sharing something that is important. And I think there's always the flip side of the coin, right? So yes, we have a history of enslavement that didn't start with enslaved Africans that actually started with indigenous um, communities, right? right? With indigenous bodies. And over time, it kind of spread. But I think also the flip side of the coin, which is like something that I like uh, around the work that Resmo Minicum is doing, is it's not just the bodies of culture that were impacted. It was the the white bodies. White body supremacy kind of became a thing, right? There was weight, right, for being in a white body, but you had to act in a certain way, which mm-hmm. lended to the culture. So you didn't say anything, like you just went along with it. And for the longest time, there were people who were just ignoring the fact that like, oh, this is dehumanizing, this is wrong. But in order to survive and not get kicked out of that group, back to that primal group, right? Not get kicked out of the group. Like you just went along with things for the longest time. And the same thing happens in larger things around collective trauma, right? With the Holocaust, with the Rohingya genocide, like with Palestine, like so many things that are happening, right? There's always the like two sides. Like you have a body that exists that is like benefiting from what is happening. And then you have the body that is being oppressed from what is happening. And because we exist in these systems or these systems that have been created to speak up really can be dangerous. dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Can be dangerous for both the oppressed and those who are similarly being oppressed, yet they have a privilege Mm -hmm. still. Right. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the patriarchy. When we think about patriarchal structures, when I was talking about men being bullied for being caring or loving or sensitive to the point where when those men grow up to be fathers, that sensitivity has been sort of beaten out of them sometimes or shamed out of them in whatever way. And so then they're not able to give that to their kids. And then, you know, and then for me, for example, I was like, yeah, my dad doesn't love me. That was the, you know, a 
a five-year-old isn't going to go, oh man, intergenerational trauma is at play and the patriarchy and like, whatever. No, that child is like, I'm something's wrong with me. I don't, I'm not enough. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that becomes that's, and then the trauma is reborn in this new way. Mm -hmm. Fuck. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that in because you're right. There is that aspect of the trauma of the oppressor as well. And sometimes I think about when I think about the time, the time period of slavery in the United States, and I think about women, you know, mm-hmm. uh, these wives who the, the, the trauma of like knowing that your husband is raping yeah. these women, that's its own kind of trauma, even though I think the rape is, is so um, inexcusable and it's so painful and it's, and it's obviously the focus there, there is also another kind of trauma going on. You're right. That even the oppressors were, were victim to. And that's, I think that's a really smart thing. It, and I think it also sort of draws us away from black, this like black and white thinking or this, like um, everyone here in this group was bad. Everyone here in this group was good. There's, there's so much gray area, mm-hmm. which brings me to my question. <laughs> I'm like, how do we fix it? <laughs> But, but I mean, I guess from a clinical perspective with so much trauma, you know, we're talking about the, some of the biggest, um, uh, these, these massive entities of trauma, like war and, you know, systems and the patriarchy and white supremacy and all of the things like, is there a way, how, how can we work with this, this intergenerational trauma differently than you might work with other kind of traumas or slash like how do we work with this period in order to heal it mm-hmm. so i'm always learning new things and my the way that i work with people changes but i think the the one thing that will always remain the same is that your response to something was the best thing you could do in that moment right? Because trauma is a response to seeking safety, right? Because you were in danger. There was a situation, there was that life threat, there was something that was threatening to like take you out essentially. And whether it was real or imagined, like you responded in the best possible way you could in that moment. And oftentimes, like when we're small, our little child brains, like they're so amazing and they do so many things for us. And so I try to never moralize your trauma response in any way, shape or form, because it was the wisest thing that your body could do. Mm. And knowing that and knowing how we inherit a lot of of ways of being and ways of existing, taking things really slow Mm. is important taking things really slow, right? Not going into the story or the content of it unless you want to. And even then taking that slow, yeah, right? Getting you reacquainted with your body in a way that feels safe and contained for you, mm. right? Because it's a returning, I like to, any, any trauma work that I do um, for myself and with individuals, I liken it to reclaiming the pieces of yourself that were left behind because there was a piece of you left behind somewhere whether it was in this kind of lifetime or in a a different generation it was like left behind there was like this pattern that was at play and it's like okay how can we go in and and access what is going to support you to feel more integrated like how can we integrate this experience because i i know intergenerational trauma has a way of not just manifesting in the family, but like also manifesting in our bodies if we don't pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Carolyn Miss is a mysticist, mystical like healer. And, and she, one of the things um, that I take from her work is like biography becomes biology. Mm-hmm. The stories we tell ourselves can often manifest in a physical way. Right. And so if we're constantly telling ourselves something about like rearing children, for instance, we might somehow develop something in that region of our body. If it's something that carries a lot of 
heaviness and negativity around it or a shadow around it, we might develop some kind of physical elements. And even if it's just a bond that has kind of been dysfunctional throughout our whole relationship until that bond is healed, until we take a look at it, it may manifest in a physical way. And so I often find myself like trying to support people and kind of not just sifting, not trying to sift through necessarily, but like in working with trauma um, to just really be with and get curious and try if it's safe enough for you to do so, try to inquire about a family family tree, try to inquire about stories like, you know, well, well how did you, what was your first experience around X, Y, Z, mm-hmm. right? and listening to the themes of what may also then have been picked up by you. Like, what is the thing that you're also believing now? Mm -hmm. And it would be great if we could heal trauma, the intergenerational trauma within families, so like doing family therapy, but I know that's not always accessible, but healing intergenerational trauma can be very transformative when it's done in a community setting. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a group, like healing just has like, it's supercharged when it's in the, in the group because everyone in the group is in service of each other and you're seeing, you're getting to try on, you're getting to play out and you're getting to be held, seen, protected. Like there's so many different things that can happen within a group dynamic too. Mm-hmm. So I totally recommend like not just individual therapy, but like also the group therapy, like finding safe communities and containers where you can kind of continue to process the work that, um, healing from trauma may inevitably bring up, right? Because the way, the way out is through. Right. And you mentioned integration. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Mm -hmm. So integration is, I like to see it as being you being able to make a meaningful story, like find meaning or purpose in the experience that you had Mm. right and not just that piece but embodied allowing it to be embodied so allowing like a sensation that may have been um, associated or a bodily response that may have been associated with a traumatic event or experience allowing yourself to sit with that asking what the wisdom of the body is wanting to communicate with you Mm. allowing yourself to to find meaning and purpose in that experience, you know, acceptance is a piece of it, right? And just because you accept something doesn't mean it's acceptable, right? Because there are a shit ton of things that may have happened to you and that have happened to me that I'm like, that's not acceptable. But I do find that when I'm able to accept, okay, this is the experience I had, this was my reality, and I'm done allowing it to kind of dictate and rule the way in which I'm experiencing my relationships now, that no no more like it is what it it is what it was and i will not let it you know control me anymore oh i love that it is what it was Mm -hmm. it is what it was but it's not it's not what it is yeah not now not now now. (laughs) oh my god i love that so much yeah wow Thank you so much, Renee, for coming on. This has just been such an incredible conversation. I I just can't thank you enough for sharing about um, some of these bigger ideas and also about your own experience. Thank you so, so much. Of course. It was so good to be with you today, Remy. I thank you for reaching out. So grateful for the connection. (laughs) Yeah, me too. And speaking of connection, if people want to connect with you, is there a way that they can do that? There is a way they can um, follow me if they would like on IG. It's just my first name, Renee, R-E-N-E-E, last name Tate, T-A-T-E, and the letters A-M-F-T. So you can find me on IG at that handle. Okay, great. And um, if y'all want to connect with me, my email is patramaparty at gmail.com. And also, I just want to put it out there. If you feel like you're getting something out of these episodes, it would mean so much if you could rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your pods. It really does make a huge difference. And uh, yeah, until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye.